Hi folks, welcome to this week's edition of the Finance Hour. The show this week is all about black swans. Now I'm tipping that you've never seen a black swan, and if you did, you would be very surprised. Now in the world of finance, a black swan is an event that deviates beyond what is normally expected and is extremely difficult to predict. So it's quite topical now. It's been 30 years since the 1987 crash, where the market fell by more than 25% in one day. So we discuss whether or not that was a black swan event. In addition, it's about 10 years since a global financial crisis struck. Uh, was this a black swan event? We have a good discussion today with Tim Farrelly, who we've interviewed many times before, about the difference between a black swan event and just markets being overvalued, which may be something that we can predict. I'm joined again in the studio by my friend Michael Chu, who helps me explore these issues. I hope you enjoyed the show, and please, if you do have a chance, leave us some feedback on iTunes, or you can check out other shows at adaptwealth.com.au slash podcast. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to the Finance Hour, whether you're listening live on Jair or indeed on our podcast. This is the show where we make sense of the world of business and finance and hopefully help you make better financial decisions. I'm joined in the studio today by Michael Chu, uh, Director of Orange Wealth. Uh, Michael's been on the show a couple of times before, and I'm very glad to have you here today. Welcome, Michael. Yeah, thanks, Ruben. Glad to be back uh, to talk about a, um, a really interesting topic. Excellent. Now, the topic of today is the black swan, black swan events. Have you ever seen a black swan before? Have I seen one? Uh, I, prob- <laughs> I probably have, but I don't remember the occurrence. Um, uh, but the animal, I'm sure, is different to what we're going to talk about yeah, today. Yeah, well, the black swan is obviously very rare, and you generally get a shock when you see it. Um, but we're talking about now a black swan uh, in sort of the finance world. And this was a term that was coined uh, by a finance professor by the name of Nassim Nicholas Taleb, or NNT. So he wrote a book called Black Swan Event, and the way he defined a black swan, black swan is an event or occurrence that deviates beyond what is normally expected of a situation and is extremely difficult to predict. So we're going to talk about black swan events, what actually qualifies as black swan events, um, and we're going to have a good discussion with Tim Farrelly uh, from, from Farrelly's, funnily enough, uh, who's going to uh, give us his input on it and whether or not these things can be predicted, although I guess by definition it looks like they can't be. Uh, have you had any sort of experience with you know, people asking or talking about these kind of events that come out of nowhere? I think any time there's a significant world event or um, or something like the GFC, for example, yeah, um, people uh, want to know what they should do. Yeah. Um, and I think Black Swan fits into those kind of scenarios. I don't know if that's how we'll define it by the end of the show, but yeah. definitely things that impact people's lives, both personally and financially, that they weren't expecting to happen yeah. and that are a big, sudden deal. Um, yeah, people people often talk about, especially after the fact. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting, actually, the um, perspective of thinking about a personal Black Swan event as well. 
I suppose you could have a personal financial black swan event. It might be, you know, something like losing your job totally unpredictably or or losing your business. Um, but certainly, I guess what we can talk about today is black swan events uh, in terms of financial markets. But it's also one of those things that uh, there'll always be people that will say, well, it wasn't a black swan event, it was predictable, won't there? There'll always be people who are predicting gloom all the time and will claim that, yeah, this was really obvious all along. And hindsight is always a great thing to mm. have. It's always easy to say, yep, that was predictable post mm. an event that, yeah. that happened. Uh, but if you did nothing about it before the event, you know, it's, mm. that, that's, it's all for nothing really. Yeah. So, yeah, I think um, I think there's lots of uh, things that happen in, um, in the world that impact financial markets. Mm. And um, it's hard for people to make decisions based on... Um, thinking about them potentially come up or not coming up. So I think we'll cover yeah. that today. Yeah. Well, it is interesting, and Tim will give us a perspective because I know that he definitely believes that there are strong indications when markets become overvalued or when they become really expensive. Uh, obviously, people are talking a lot about the property market yep. like that. Uh, I know Tim in his uh, methodology, and I should... I should uh, uh, make it clear what Tim's role is. So he effectively gives uh, advice to advisors uh, and helps us in terms of putting investment portfolios together for clients. And it's the main focus of it around is asset allocation, which really means what percentage of assets do you have in the different asset classes? How much do you have in cash, term deposits, shares, property? Uh, and that's generally determined by two factors. Uh, number one is the client's appetite for risk, whether they can afford to take, uh, you know, to accept short-term volatility or falls in the market. But the other, imp- the other uh, significant input is how markets are valued, right? So if they're good value or if they're really, really expensive, but you've got a high risk profile, well, you still probably shouldn't be invested in it. Yeah. And then I assume black swan events happen regardless of both of those things. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But it, but I think sometimes it's you know, it's probably debatable what actually is you know the black swan event. For example, if the property market fell now, the residential property market, if that fell, you know, could you call that a black swan event? Probably not. Probably but, but, not. I, but I reckon some people would though. Yeah, some people would uh, would consider it. Anyway, we'll uh, we might just take a short break, uh, and we'll try to get Tim on the phone uh, just a short musical interlude and we'll, we'll be back with Tim Farrelly Welcome back to the Finance Hour you're listening to Ruben Zelwa and Michael Chu uh, on J-Air or on our podcast uh, today we have joining us I think for the third time uh, Tim Farrelly Tim Farrelly is a uh, investment asset allocation specialist he helps advisors like myself uh, put together investment portfolios for clients and the particular focus is around how much do we have in different asset classes be it cash shares property and today we are talking about black swan events and we are looking forward to hearing tim's input hi tim how are you going good thanks ruben how are you good hey tim great to have you back tim uh the topic of today is black swan events so we uh, had a, I know you've written an article about this recently, which I want to talk to you about. Uh, but obviously, this 
This term was coined by uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, or was it Nicholas Nassim yep. Taleb, uh, yep. in his book Black Swan Event. And I guess what we want to do to start with is is define what a black swan event is. I mean, I have said that it's it's basically uh, financial situations that come up that are totally unpredictable uh, to achieve to to occur. But I guess I'd like your input to start with on on what kind of what are black swan events that we've seen over the last I don't know thirty, forty, fifty years in financial markets. Um. If you take the strict definition of black swan, not that many. Yeah. The, you know, the idea of the black swan was in Europe. There, there, were, there are no black swans. And so there was this term, a black swan, meaning something that was impossible. Yeah. And then I think, I'm, I'm not sure it could have been first in Australia, they actually found black swans. And it, it was something that occurred that everyone concerned, concerned thought was impossible. Yeah. And there hasn't been that much along that line. Is that right? Because a lot of people would say that the GFC was a black swan event, that we couldn't see it coming. Well, it wasn't so much that we, we certainly didn't see I, I think that's the way it's come to be defined now, is more like something that comes out of the blue and that was somewhat unpredictable, mm. which is not quite the same as something possible. Right. But I think, let, let, let's work with the newer definition, which is a better one, in fact, which says... Here we're struck by something that's come out of the blue. Yeah. And that really is the thing in markets you need to worry about the most. Yeah. Um, because typically what happens is if there's something brewing, um, the markets get wind of it and they sell down, sell down, sell down. A great example of that was when everyone was concerned about Grexit, Greece, yeah. Greece exiting the European Union. The market sold down and sold down and sold down. By the time most people got to be kind of fully aware of that event, the market had already sold off a lot. Mm. But surely that was, that wasn't something that was unpredictable. I mean, you could see that coming, you know, for almost for years. You looked at the ridiculous debt they had, the unemployment, the fact that no one's paying taxes. I mean, surely that's not something that was unpredictable. That's a, that's, a, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. And I, I guess it's the point about that one, if it did happen, I'm not sure the markets would have fallen much further. On the other hand, when it didn't happen, because people had predicted it, as you've been taught, as you mentioned, the market just took off. Yeah, yeah. So those times when there's a very visible event that people say, look, this is a real risk in the market, typically that's the best time to invest. Mm. What about the... Uh what about the nine? It's been exactly thirty years since the nineteen eighty-seven market crash. Was that a black swan event? Ah, that's a really interesting one. <laughs> uh, well, no, no that, that, that that definitely was a black swan event. Yeah. And the thing that made that definitely a black swan event for mine is prior to that time, bull markets took place over months or years. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, bear markets. I'm sorry, bear markets. Yeah, that's a market falling by more than what. 20% or? More than 20%. Yeah. That one occurred in a day. Yeah. That never been seen before. It went from being a bit sort of wobbly to an absolute free fall within a day. So that is a classic black swan event. Right. So in that case, that really wasn't triggered so much by something happened in the world. It was the structure of the markets at the time. Right. Where 
in that case, people were buying this product called portfolio insurance. And the way portfolio insurance worked is market started to fall, you would get protection by selling some of your shares. There was so much of that going around that when markets started to fall, it created more selling. The more selling got the market to fall, that created more selling, and mm. it just took off. And it wasn't... Yeah, and it wasn't precipitated by a a specific event. Like, it wasn't precipitated by a war or by something as crazy as Donald Trump becoming president. That's correct. And, and, and that really came out of left field. Now, mm. At the time, many people were speculating or suggesting that prices were way too high, the market had gone crazy. Mm. And there certainly was an element of that. That was an overpriced market. Uh, the unusual part was just how quickly it unfolded. And we haven't seen anything like that since, with a fall of that nature so quickly. So that, that would definitely be one. And, and the thing about those ones is when you can't see them coming, it's almost impossible to defend against them. <laughs> They're me. the ones that have the big fall. Are Whereas you... the point around the Grexit one is because that could be seen to be coming, if it had happened, my guess is the markets wouldn't have fallen very much. But when it didn't happen, they took off. Yeah. So it's, it's when these very visible risks that people sometimes refer to as black swans, but as you point out, are not black swans because people can see them coming. They're, they're actually a good time to invest. Are you seeing that the um, the frequency of these type of events is increasing in recent years, or are they about the same frequency across the last few decades? Uh, Interesting question. I, I, I suspect a, a genuine one of these things comes along about every 20 years. Yeah. Maybe, I, I, you know, I'm thinking the size and scale of the GFC was something no one was expecting. Mm. Mm. But if you went back to the 20s, there were similar panics and crashes around that time. And it's all... For 50 or 60 years. Yeah. And it's interesting because there's always going to be people that are, you know, looking at the downside all the time and predicting gloom who will always be saying that, you know, the, something even like the GFC was entirely predictable. There'll always be those people around who will claim that, you know, it's not a black swan event, but that's probably because they're predicting one every time they write an article or get on the news. Well, absolutely. And, and I think it's at Stanford University, they've done experiments and they got people to write negative stock market articles and positive ones. Yeah. They showed them to people and said, which of these authors is more intelligent? And overwhelmingly, people who write negative articles look smarter. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good incentive to do it. And they found it not only in financials, financial services, they found it in literary articles. So when people mm. were writing critical articles about books, they said, oh, that review is much smarter than the one that's given the glow. Is that right? So, so, yeah, so it's in all yeah. walks, or criticising movies, or... All of that. The mm. negative stuff sells. Yeah. Which, which is a real trap, because, you know, overwhelmingly, what we read in the press is negative. And the classic example right now are the Australian banks, which, you know, yeah. as you know, is a bit of a hobby horse to buy. Yeah. Every time you pick up a paper, they'll tell you why they're about to fall apart. And yet they continue to crank out really good returns mm. to shareholders and have done for years and years. I think they're going to do it for years to come. But that's a classic example. I think the problem yeah. for, for everyday investors reading the press and thinking about how they make decisions about their money is that the negative 
comments mean that they procrastinate and don't make decisions. Um, and, and I think that I see that with clients all the time. That's a real, real challenge is not making decisions, not making long-term decisions and having the or, right strategy. Or, or having made the right strategy, then make a knee-jerk decision to get out of that right mm. strategy. And invariably, again, it's at the worst possible time. You know, if, if you had got spooked by the whole Brexit thing, or indeed the Brexit thing, or the Trump thing, you would have been selling out at the worst possible time. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and the, the Brexit one and the Trump election last year, just absolute classics where, one, I wouldn't quite call them black swan events because, you know, clearly people were contemplating that maybe they would vote a yes for Brexit. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it was a two it was a two horse race, both of those things, weren't it? It was either yes or no, exactly. and it was either... It was either Trump or Hillary. So, so both, in both cases, it was possible. It was, it was the outsider that got up. Mm. But more to the point, if you had correctly predicted that Brexit was going to happen, the chances are you would have sold US or UK equities. That's right. And then they took off in the other direction. So if you were smart enough to work out how the voters were going, you would have actually got it wrong. Mm. Well, that's interesting as well because you see that so, so you're saying if you, even if you got the what happened right, you wouldn't have gotten uh, you know the direction of the markets. Absolutely. Right. And you think about think about the Trump one. Let's say part of your investment strategy was to say we are going to follow these kind of events mm. and make decisions based on them. So, if your uh, belief was going into the elect uh, uh, that, that election that Trump was going to win. And I know people who were in this position. The chances are you would have won, said, yes, I think Trump's going to win. Good call. They sold everything. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, when, when the market took off, they sort of, you know, they ended up losing money. Well, what's also interesting, though, Tim, is you're talking about uh, the short term, right? So in the short term after that event, the markets kept going up and arguably now, even though it's nine months after, it still is a short term. But obviously someone like Trump creates a huge amount of instability you know, in the world and in, you, you'd think, in the, you know, certainly in the financial markets in America. So the question is, is well, maybe they, the people who sold were wrong in the short term, but maybe they'll be right in the long term. That's absolutely right, but at this stage, they would appear to be on the wrong side of that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and look at the flip side, which is also very interesting. Let's say you're like me, and you said, I can't imagine Trump is going to win. Yeah. And as a result of that, I was happy to maintain all my equity positions. When Trump got up, if I was a short-term uh, investor... I would have sold just after he got up, being completely surprised. Yeah. After market was down about eight percent in the first day, or seven percent or whatever, it was still quite a bit. And then I would have seen it roar ahead against me. Mm. So I kind of would have been wrong twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, but, you know, that brings up by, by doing the Trump one, for example, which is a really good example. If I was playing the geopolitics game, as is my investment strategy. It didn't matter whether I got Trump's election right or wrong, I would have lost money. Mm. You're saying... It's, it's yeah. a fundamentally dangerous... Well, I don't, 
it's a fundamentally difficult one to play because so often you're surprised by the outcome. It brings up a good question for, for your everyday mum and dad investors. What do they do to protect themselves against uh, these types of scenarios, which happen regularly enough? I think you know, th- there's conversations probably about it will there be a war in the, in the short term. Um, yes. Definitely lots of um, political interest in that space and, and lots of activity. Um, yeah, what, what should they do? Uh, the answer is really, really simple. It's really simple. It's invest for the long term and stay reasonably well diversified. Yeah. So right now, if you had 50% of your equity exposure in South Korea, you're probably taking unacceptable risks, even if mm. you're taking a long-term point of view. Mm. Yeah. If you've got 2% in or something like that, well, the chances are nothing will happen in that market will do well. But if it does, if things do turn up very badly there, it, it, you know, your, your portfolio is could still do well for what it's got elsewhere. Yeah. Now, Tim, uh, just going back, it really is quite a controversial thing that you're saying here in a way because any market commentary that you get, be it the newspaper or even us, you know, financial advisors, when we get market commentary from fund managers or whoever it is, they're always going to be talking about what's going on in the world, right? What's going on in yeah. America, what wars could happen, what's happening in Korea. Uh, you seem to be suggesting that all that stuff is totally irrelevant. I think a starting point for all investors should be when it comes to making investment decisions, completely ignore it. Really? Completely ignore it because more often than not, it leads to the wrong decision. I've seen examples where it's led to good decisions, but you know, in my time in the markets, which go back to the late 70s, far more often I have seen people make terrible mistakes. Mm. on the basis of their reading of geopolitics. Mm-hmm. So you'll always find someone said, oh, I saw that and I did that as a result. But far more often, there are people who don't say, oh, I saw that and did the opposite and I got cleaned up. Mm. And is that because they don't have all the knowledge to make that decision, all the, all the information required to make that decision accurately? What's the reason behind that? Well, I mean, who would have thought that Trump winning would have sent the market through the roof. Mm. Who would have thought that Britain getting out of Brexit, which as time goes on is shaping up as really a bad thing for the UK, would send the market going through the roof? It's kind of like it seems to me that the logical analysis would have gone the other way. And all that really says is short-term markets are fundamentally difficult to predict. Unless you've got some special skill, you're probably better off going to the track. Yeah, well, we are on live on J-Air or on the Finance Hour podcast. We are speaking to Tim Farrelly. I have Michael Chu in the studio with me. Tim, I just want to continue on that because you're, what you're saying, uh, there'll be a lot of listeners who will also be owning individual shares, so they might be owning Telstra or NAB and Commonwealth Bank. Would you apply that, would the similar philosophy apply to individual stocks as compared to what you're talking about in entire markets in, in in that if there's news about a particular stock say you know Telstra cutting their dividend by 40 percent uh, that it's still not clear that that's going to have an immediate impact on the share price well there's two things it's one it's not clear what the immediate impact is going to be and it's often not what you what you think it would be mm. I mean what happened with Telstra Telstra 
after I cut the dividend. Like share price went up after a while. Right. And cut the dividend. Get outperformed the other banks for a while. You know, mm. how does this work? Mm. And so sometimes, you can, even if you'd worked out this was going to happen, you can assume that this is going to be a bad thing where sometimes the market says it's a good thing. Mm. Well, they might say they cut their dividend and that means they're keeping more capital and they're, they're more confident that they can reinvest it, for example. And so the market, yeah. Mm. Or at other times the market might say, oh, this is a disaster. We're going to sell it off. So I guess my point is it's fundamentally difficult. Now, the, the, the one exception to that well, there's two exceptions. One of them is illegal, which is inside of knowledge and inside of trading, and clearly that's out. But other times, there are businesses where you know their industry particularly well. Mm-hmm. And you can see things happening in that industry before the market is a whole. Now, it's not very often, but you know, in, in our industry, and I've got to say, I was asleep at the wheel on this one and didn't get involved, but you know, we could see the Magellan Financial Group absolutely cleaning up in terms of all new inflows. Of all new what, sorry? Oh, inflows. All, all fund inflows. Right. right, right. And you could say, you know, this is a business really going somewhere. Mm. And as it turned out, those shares have gone through the roof. But and sometimes... Been wrong. Yeah. But, but we can often see those things earlier than others because we are involved in the industry right and that's something that the market might not have seen but on the other on the other hand you have something like enron where you had all the executives that were so close to it and thought they knew so much and put all their all their all their shares and leveraged up and put all their superannuation into it and it can also work the other way can't it absolutely right absolutely right so i mean generally speaking my advice would be don't try and pick the short term. It is simply too hard. Mm. If you really must do that stuff, go to the track. There, at least you'll know you'll lose your money, but you know what the odds are. You'll have a good time at the same time. Fun. You can have some fun, you know. But Tim, it, it, think about it the same way. Tim, what do you see the what do you see the kind of the next twelve twenty four months? Looking like at a geopolitical level, what are the what are the things on the horizon that might uh, impact markets? Well, clearly anything with Donald Trump's name next to it. Yeah. The, the really big one, I suspect, is likely to be whether he gets his tax cuts through or not. Hmm. Now, if he gets his tax cuts through, my guess is the market has a bit of a run for a while, but who knows? Um, but because it, it's already had a run, it's, it's already counted these tax cuts once already. But I have a suspicion that they go through, they'll count it again. At which point, mm. yeah, my view is long term, the US market represents pre core value. Because one of the things, you know, and when I've studied markets and profitability, is what you find is tax cuts get given back. So companies, when they get their tax cuts, have a big jump in profit. Well, they have a big jump in. In profit because they're paying less tax, or it's they less tax. if they're getting a hundred dollars of pre-tax profit instead of getting seventy of post, they're now getting uh, eighty of post-tax profits, and so their earnings have gone up by fifteen percent or whatever that number is. Yeah. What then happens is the high return on equity attracts competitors. They start investing, and before you know it, the return on equity is back to where it started from. Mm. So they don't get to keep the profit, typically. And that's been the case 
case, I've looked at the US market, the UK market, the Australian market, all who have seen major tax cuts for corporations since the 70s, all of them have got similar return on equity today as they did back then. So they do give it back. That's yeah. certainly been the historical record. Yeah. So and that's, that's another reason why I say, look, if you get these tax cuts through, that market looks like it's fully priced to overpriced. Understood. Okay, so look, Tim, thank you very much. Anyone who's uh, enjoyed this conversation with Tim, we do have another podcast early on. I can't remember what number it is. It's about number three or number four, but I'll put it in the show notes. And in that podcast, Tim actually talks about the things that you can potentially see, uh, things that you, there are still some things that you can predict, uh, and that is sort of market bubbles, or you can at least know when you're in a market bubble. That's, a, that's a, a conversation we've had then and something we might touch on again, Tim, uh, at some point. Yes, hopefully we'll get to a market bubble before too long and we'll all pay a bit of money in the meantime. <laughs> okay, <laughs> thanks a lot, Tim. Okay, thanks, guys. Okay, thanks, bye-bye. Welcome back to the Finance Hour, whether you're listening live on JR or indeed on the podcast. Uh, we've spoken to Tim Farrelly. The topic of today's, uh, top of today's show was Black Swan Event. Uh, but we have another, another segment that Michael is going to introduce, and it's got something to do with the property market, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So um, I think it was, uh, it might have been last week or potentially the week before, um, Daniel Andrews and the Victorian government came out with some proposed enhancements for renters. Yeah. Um, and what, what we're going to talk about today is how re- these rental law changes may impact on landlords yep. and yep. essentially the investors, yep. the investor side. So. Have these come in as law yet? Or? They're proposed. So right. the government has gone through um, a period of time where they've uh, had studies and committees and, and recommendations yeah. um, and come up with papers around changes, and now they've proposed them as uh, as as laws. Yeah. It uh, hasn't passed through Parliament yet, so it's yeah. coming. Yeah. Um, and the timing of the proposal, and if you read some material on it, it's very linked to, uh, I think, a by-election in Northcote uh, okay. and a really high percentage of renters in Northcote. Yep. So the timing seems a bit suspicious, but yep. um, regardless of whether you think that's the case or not, I think it's worth having a, just a quick look yep. and discussion about what they really mean for investors and do they push investors away from property yep. in Victoria only? This is just talking about Victoria. Or um, is there anything investors should do yep. um, as landlords? Okay, so, so what are the rules? Well, I'll, I'll take you through a couple of stats first because yeah. I think it's important to understand why uh, investors, uh, why these laws are coming in. So around 25% of Victorian households rent, um, but in no- areas like Northcote, that's about 40%. Mm-hmm. Um and with the increase in house prices over the last few years, more and more people are becoming what they call deemed long-term renters. So now one in three Victorians is deemed a long-term renter, and, th- and that means that they've rent continuously for 10 years or more. Yeah. Um, so the premise behind this is that they're protections for renters. There's 14 reforms proposed. I'll just take you through four or maybe five of them. Yeah. Uh, so every tenant in Victoria will now have the right to have a pet in their rental property. <laughs> Um, we'll wow. come back to what they that may mean in a second. I'll so just, you can't exclude pets. You can't. Say you can't that. automatically exclude pets. There are some very small provisions around special circumstances mm-hmm. where you wouldn't allow a pet. But uh, yeah, if your tenant applies, I assume you can't ask them if they've got pets anymore. And um, and then if they bring their big German Shepherd with them, yeah, 
you, there's, you don't have any you don't have any protection against that. Interesting. Okay. Uh, there's a crackdown on rental bidding. So rental yeah. bidding is where you and uh, and uh, John both turn up at the rental property together. You both sign an application form um, that has the rental amount, and the the agent calls you back and says, "Hey, uh, I've got another guy who's also interested in it. Did you want to place a higher <laughs> offer?" It does seem it, it does seem corrupt in a way, I guess, that yeah. practice. Um, it's so, not going to be easy to police. So they're, they're wanting to outlaw it, but yeah, it'd be yeah. interesting to see how they do yeah. police it. Um, this one kind of links back to the pets one for me. So um, where a, a rental property is leasing for less than 760 a week, so that's kind of the... It excludes the high-value rental properties. Um, yep. The maximum bond that a, a landlord can ask for is one month's rent. Right, okay. Um the other thing that is around bonds is that tenants will be able to apply for the release of the bond without the consent of a landlord, mm. and a landlord has to challenge that within two weeks. Wow. Because now it's really up to the landlord, isn't it? They come and inspect the property and... Correct. So, so that's interesting. So this is really, to a significant extent, uh, tipping the scales more in favour of the renters, isn't it? Absolutely. So all these yep. reforms, are there any of those reforms that are positive for landlords? No, they're all about renters. They're all, all it's all a hundred percent about renters, mm. um, and it's all, it's all being marketed that way to the the general uh, general public. Mm. Um, uh, landlords only be able to increase rents once per year as well. So really, yeah. So at the yeah. moment, you can re- increase rents, you know, as, as frequently as, as you, you want. want. Mm. Um, so let's talk about what this means. Pets and bonds this is probably the first mm. topic. Uh, Ruben, if you've got uh, a property out in. Uh, uh, out in Malvern, let's say, yeah. nice. You got a nice Victorian or Edwardian out there, yeah. and you had um, someone turn up with their German Shepherd, mm. um, have a twelve-month lease on the property, and you couldn't control the conditions under which that tenant was living in your property mm. uh, around their pet. How would that make you feel? Well, would you feel protected by having the one-month bond? I don't know. I think yeah. At the end of the day, when you're renting your property out. You, you sort of don't have control, really, do you? I mean, who's to know if the pet's going to be any worse than the party and the drugs and whatever, or the kids drawing on the walls? Yep. yep. I mean, like, is it really going to make such a difference? I, I, I sort of feel what what you don't know can't hurt you. It probably also <laughs> depends on the kind of property as well, because if it's like an sure. older property, you know, they're built really well and the most of the values in the land anyway. But I suppose if it's like a brand new apartment or something where a lot of the values in the building itself, you you'd, you might be a bit more concerned. I think the challenge for, for landlords is going to be, well, what's the difference between the bond, which is the money that the tenants paid that I can recoup to repair the property, mm. versus what's the potential damage? And that happens, you're right, today with, you know, parties and kids and all that kind yeah. of stuff. That, that, that still exists today. Um, I guess the pet topic brings that back to light. Mm. Um, for me, I think th- there's probably an emphasis on uh, the value of insurance for damage to properties that uh, landlords take out um, and having that insurance cover you in the case if you feel like you mm. might you might have issues with a tenant in the future or you could potentially have issues with a tenant in the future. Mm. Um that's really, I think, the only thing you can do to protect yourself in this Yeah, this just, just take out more insurance. But, yeah, you can still vet the... Surely you can still refuse certain tenants, can't you? I mean, if they don't... They've got to do authority check... What is it? Uh, you know, third-party checks and the like. And if yeah, you're not yeah, happy yeah. with it, you can still... 
you know, you could still say no without having to give a reason for why you're discriminating against them. Correct. Yeah, it's your choice in who starts. Mm. Um, but uh, once you've got them, if you didn't have that information through mm. that process, then so you maybe you can't. Can you ask them if they've got a pet? Well, it's going to be interesting. That's, <laughs> that's that's not clear. I suspect that if you ask them, I, th- I suspect that if uh, if landlords are asking them, you're not complying with the rules about excluding mm. them if you have got pets. So interesting. Um, and definitely the tenants will know. They don't have to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's an interesting one. I. Um, so what does that mean for for landlords and investors? Well, I think you just got to be careful. Mm. You got to protect yourself. I don't think it changes renting properties. No. You just got to protect yourself. And look, it's probably not a bad thing that things are being tipped a bit more in the in the side of renters. I mean, the other thing which really works against renters is the short term nature of leases yeah. of residential properties. You know, yep. they're only really twelve month leases. Uh, and then it often goes month to month, so you can be booted out really quickly. In places like Europe, uh, where home ownership levels are pretty low, you have really you can have really long term leases on residential properties. Now we tend to ha- we in Australia you can have long term leases on on offices and shops. You know you might have five year leases and the like, but with you know with residential property, they people can get kicked out really quickly. And I wonder is that. Is any of the reforms focused around that, the length of the leases? Listen, there's definitely talk about that. I haven't seen anything documented in terms of um, uh, mandating long-term leases, Mm. but I think that's the way the Andrews government's working towards... Mm. um, What they're working towards is to um, protect long-term tenants and give them a safe home that Mm. they can rely on. Um, So so there is is one other um, change which they're proposing, which is you can't give notice to a tenant for no reason. Right, which happens at the moment. Right, right. But you, what can you? What is your your reason? Could be I'm repainting the house or whatever. I mean, once again, how do you really police those things? What they actually should do now that I'm thinking about it is they should say for each year maybe the tenant's been in there, they've got to have an extra month notice. It's an interesting one. So if you've been there for yep. six years, you've got to have six months notice. Yep, yep. They are definitely talking about. Mm. Uh, I sort of read some. So, so they did a whole bunch of research and papers. One of the one of the things in one of those papers was 182 days notice period for tenants. Right. Oh, um, that's quite long. That is long. That is long. But that, I think that was across the board, and I don't think that's made it into these 14. So, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of information flying around. Listen, the last one is about um, price. So no price bidding and single rental yeah. ri- rises each year. Yep. Um, I've got a view on it, but how, how do you think that will uh, impact on people willing to invest in property? I don't think it'll change that much. I mean, I think, I don't know, but I would have thought a lot of people when they're renting out a property, they, they probably put it at the higher price to start with. And then if they don't get any bids, they go lower and lower. But I've got to say, I don't really know how much that happens, that price bidding on rent. Yeah, I haven't I, seen I just it. don't know. I haven't seen it before, but I've, mm. heard, I've heard of it. And it's probably in certain markets. I think that's yeah. right. I think people who are investors now just need to be a bit more accurate and on the ball about pricing. Yeah. So you need to price it right when you lease it and get it right at that point. And then if you're going to review the rents once a year, you price those rental reviews right. I think part of it is getting the right agent and getting them to help you manage it. So all in all, I think your your point, Ruben, is some of these uh, changes are pretty fair for Mm. renters. Um, There's a bunch of others I didn't talk about which are fair for renters as well. Yeah. and I don't and think they're going to have too that aren't much. going to be possible to police. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. They sound good in theory, but... 
I think they've got a rental commissioner or something they they've they're, yeah. they're putting in place. I see. So to, to police actually, them, right? Um, I guess that's the, that's the incentive, isn't it? That if you if you don't comply with the rules, you can get taken to yeah, a ombudsman. Or well, there is there is going one of the rules. One of the changes is a blacklist for landlords. Mm. Um, they already have one for tenants. Is that right? Um, uh, but now there'll be a blacklist for landlords, and I assume that means they haven't complied or with, yeah. the, with the with the laws. I, I don't know. I don't know if that affects you really wanting to go after a property when there's a, a limit on the number of places up for lease at the moment so that yeah. anyway that, in a nutshell that's the changes um i don't think it has a huge impact on investors yep all right michael thanks very much for that that's a very interesting topic i hope you've enjoyed this show today uh if you want to see any further shows please uh, google the finance hour and i'd also really appreciate if you find us on itunes if you could leave us uh, a positive review that will just improve the profile of the show and mean that we can get more listeners okay thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again next week